Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Peter Kreckel. He is a clinical pharmacist at Empower3 and also works as a community pharmacist two days a week at an independent by where he lives. He also teaches pharmacology in a physician's assistant program. So he wears a lot of different uh, hats or white coats, if you will, around our profession. He's also a graduate from the University of Pitt. And although I'm a Clevelander and love my Browns, I do have to say go Panthers, since they are a pretty good school of pharmacy there. So welcome to the podcast, Peter Kreckel. Thank you so much for inviting me. Looking forward to having some fruitful discussion with you, Eric. Awesome. Yeah, you uh, you recently, and this is the whole basis of this podcast, wrote an article that got published in Drug Topics, or at least on, on their online platform, that discussed some of the issues you felt pharmacists were facing in your state, specifically of Pennsylvania. You had kind of really thought that they were probably, if not the most overlooked people during this whole pandemic. You shared the article in the pharmacy staff for COVID-19 support, and it got shared hundreds of times, got hundreds of likes, and it just kept going from there. I thought it was pretty it was pretty reflective of what we felt during this pandemic as pharmacists and pharmacy techs. Can you discuss kind of like what made you write that we're so overlooked and why you believed we are so overlooked? That's an interesting question is why do I think we're overlooked? I think we are always overlooked because we provide so much good stuff for free that people are more than willing to take advantage of us. The impetus for this was a discussion with Vince Capone, who is one of my PA students, and now he's a practitioner, a clinician at the Empower 3 program. And we were talking one day, and he said, you know, Pete, what I've discovered is we all get the designation of we are the essential employees. You know, we had little placards, little sheets of paper we could put on our dashboards that would tell the police during the pandemic shutdown that we were essential. You know, I work at Thompson Pharmacy. I work at Empower 3. You know, I am an essential employee. He says, and I don't agree with that. He said, they're using the wrong word. I feel the word should be expendable employees. He says, because you think about it, are we essential? Well, maybe that connotation for sure, but we're also expendable simply because we're the ones out in the front line. We're the ones that can get mowed down by the coronavirus. We're all the truly essential people are at home, sitting on their couch with their computer, working from home, where we're in the front lines, dealing with sick patients coming in to see us, providing them, in Vince's case, uh, providing them with the health care at the doctor's office, examining patients, doing all that. And I'm providing them their medications and consultations. So that was the, the impetus for this is the designation of essential versus expendable. He feels we're expendable. The essential people are the one that stayed home. Yeah. And, you know, the the whole COVID group that started, we did that because of exactly what you were, you're saying here. We were really worried that, you know, pharmacists could get it, spread it to the communities, or we would get it and have to shut down pharmacies and, you know, decrease people's access to care for any number of reasons. And, you know, you really kind of hit this in, in your article saying that McDonald's and some of these workers are getting a raise in your state from like hazard pay with your governor and they're deemed essentials or they're deemed essential employees too, but so are we. Can you kind of talk about what your logic was, was comparing a pharmacist to, and pharmacy staff to McDonald's employees? Well, first of all, I'm not going to be an advocate for pharmacists making an extra $3 an hour. We're blessed. Right. Let's face yeah. it, we are blessed with, with very good wages. But our pharmacy technicians, for the most part, 
the average wage across the state of Pennsylvania is about 15 bucks an hour. So pharmacy technicians, cashiers, and all that were excluded because of this generally accepted North American industry classification system, which pharmacies fall under health and personal care stores, which is separate from retail food merchants and healthcare providers, okay? So basically it's this, we're not really retail people according to this classification. So it was definitely overlooked, but our governor, Governor Tom Wolf, didn't want to make any amends for that. So I contacted Judy Ward, who is our state senator. And in Pennsylvania, we have 203 representatives. And we have a Senate that consists of 50 senators. So, yeah, we have 253 representatives in Harrisburg. Yes, we are the biggest legislature in the union. But I contacted Judy. She's a nurse. And she is our local representative, and she just thought this was horrible. And immediately they drafted a letter. Her and a, a Democrat, Judy, is a, a Republican. And no, they, the state has just denied it. And uh, so our technicians who are there every day working their tails off for, you know, at, at the highest $15 an hour, were not able to get the $3 an hour hazard pay like maybe the cashier at the big box store or maybe the shelf stalker at the big box store simply because they worked in a pharmacy. Were we essential or were we expendable? Yeah, and I, that's kind of interesting. You, there, there's that weird niche we fit into where we don't have provider status. Uh, we do in a lot of states, but we don't have it federally. We're not recognized. So some of the, the things that came there with providers, we could have gotten some of the PPE or some of the other things that they kind of uh, mandated or provided for providers but we're also not that true retail where we're selling you know like i don't want to use walmart because they have a pharmacy but like maybe a, a local grocery chain that doesn't have a pharmacy we're not we don't fit their mold either but yet we still sell things that people have to have and we, you know we try and put up a barriers we try and do this but in many cases the states i know at least in my state here in ohio we were mandated we could not close as a pharmacy pending someone got sick for a cleaning or some other crazy circumstance like that, which we've seen all across our state at various pharmacies in probably every county as far as I know. Almost everyone I know has had to have their store shut down at some point in time for uh, deep cleaning related to COVID. And you brought up a really interesting point about that $3 an hour extra raise for technicians. And I'm, I'm with you. Pharmacists don't need the extra $3 an hour right now. That is not what we're discussing, but we feel that the technicians do because like you said, that's a significant raise for somebody like that. Who's on the lower end of the pay scale. And because of the PBM cutbacks, we can't pay a whole lot more. And for somebody who's at best making $600 a week, which now somebody who's on unemployment is making more than that. At least they were when the government had the, uh, the cares act with a $600 a week increase to unemployment. So now they're working, making less than somebody who isn't working. Is that kind of what really irked you with this is seeing that that dichotomous relationship of you're working and getting paid less than somebody who isn't? Yes. One of my pharmacy uh, interns was working and she said, was talking about her boyfriend and I elucidate this in the article that was in drug topics. And she says, Oh, he's making a whole lot more. Now remember that $600 a week is in addition to their unemployment benefit. Right. So they got a $15 an hour raise on their unemployment benefit. And let's just say they were their unemployment benefits would have been two hundred bucks a week, or three hundred bucks a week. You're looking at nine hundred dollars a week for this kid as an intern. 
you know, they're kind of lowest on the food chain. She's probably making 10 or $12 an hour working in the pharmacy, answering the phone, counting the pills, doing all of those types of things that we expect pharmacy technicians and student pharmacists to do or pharmacy interns to do. Meanwhile, and just interestingly enough, her boyfriend was at home making $900 a week doing nothing. It should never be discouraged to go to work in the morning, and it should never be encouraged to stay home because you're making more money because it's easier to go to the mailbox than it is to go to work. And that's why I kind of called out Governor Tom Wolf for that, because he should have given that kind of a $3 an hour raise to everybody that he considered essential. I consider my technicians and my cashiers to be extremely essential uh, to the to the healthcare. Picture this, you know, we get paid by the for our for our tips when we're doing our, our CMRs and we're doing our outcomes, you know, and we have to call somebody and tell them, you know, hey, make sure you're taking your lisinopril every day. And when we do that, we get 10 bucks for it. However, how are they going to get their lisinopril if we don't keep the store open? Yeah. We are essential. There, it is just such a convoluted system that I think our, our governor could have stepped up to the plate and really made the $3 an hour raise and said, hey, Sorry, we forgot about you guys. We're going to make it good right now, taking care of everybody that works in the drugstore. Yeah, and the one thing I thought was interesting is how you you specify expendable versus essential here. And I, I think there's a little bit of overlap, but I get what you're saying. And you particularly called out how you know PBMs moved incredibly fast to keep people out of the office as much as possible, and even some of the higher ups and some of the pharmacy organizations or companies, uh, not organizations, the companies tried to keep people home as much as possible. And there's some chains that even saw some of the district managers and higher up who just did not come in. Like they called in, they would you know come in via camera if they could, they'd remote in, but they would not come in. But yet the pharmacists and especially the techs were right there on the front lines, taking people's money, handing them their prescriptions, taking, taking all the stuff back and forth with them as much as they could to help them out. Did you find that kind of ironic with uh, some of the PBMs and some of the other pe- people who got to stay home, even though pharmacy technicians didn't? When I had to call, it was a previous Drug Topics article I wrote about where uh, I, I needed to get a patient put on Traceva because the flex pen was easier to use for the patient. And the lady says, oh, we're working from home. I said, you are working from home. You're sitting in the comfort of your office, your couch, wherever you're sitting, making a decision for a patient, hard of hearing, standing in front of me and needs to have this change made. I said, you're sitting at home and I'm standing here in the pharmacy with my mask off because the guy is hard of hearing and has to read lips. I said, what do you mean you can't approve it? And within, you know, maybe a half an hour, she did turn around and called me back and, and did approve the receiver for this patient. But it just irritated me to no end that here we are in the front lines telling patients, no, 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 we can't do this, taking all of their guff like we always do on a daily basis. But yet you people are in the comfort of your own home with your computers, with your FaceTime, with doing whatever it is you do uh, and telling us, no, oh, let's not forget, Eric, the bench audits. Hey, we're going to fax you a list of stuff we want copies of so we can say that, oh, no, there's not 15 drops in a milliliter. There's 20 drops in a milliliter. We're not paying you for the Travitan drops that you discussed. These are all the types of things that we have to get fixed. And I think elimination of the PBMs is the first step in doing it. 
Yeah, and we've seen uh, APHA CEO Scott Kanoa really take a strong stance on some of the PBMs and their, as he calls them, egregious practices. So I'm I'm happy to see that kind of step coming in the fold now, especially with the pandemic. Where and to your point, I was having to. There was an insurance company we're not contracted with. I mentioned this earlier podcast, but I think it's worth repeating. The, the PBM wasn't contracted with us, but the insurance company for the state Medicaid program said, no, we want a contract with you guys. We want every pharmacy in network for a limited time to make sure that everyone gets their medication during this pandemic. And every single time we build a claim, the PBM said, no, we had to call them and spend 20, at least 20 minutes, upwards of an hour sometimes just to get them to approve a claim for someone's antibiotic or whatever. So they're not hopping around pharmacies and driving all over town to try and get to a, a pharmacy that they can get their medication at. And I thought that when you talked about that PBMs, that's exactly what I was thinking because I know that I was talking to people who were at home and I'm thinking to myself, oh, that's great. You can sit at home and deny this claim for someone's antibiotic. But at the same point, I'm sitting here facing them, trying to tell them, now you have to drive to another place. Let's make another vector in the whole COVID, the whole world of COVID that can possibly get more people to catch this, whether someone over there is or if this patient is themselves. I thought that was pretty rich, kind of elaborating on your point there. Exactly. I couldn't agree with you more, Eric. PBMs provide nothing to healthcare. Nothing. They're four-year-olds that just say no to everything. <laughs> That's a pretty pretty great analogy there. I never thought of it that way. How do you think that we could go about kind of changing either it'd be some of the language legally or kind of changing the the understanding of what we do so that in the future, if this happens, or maybe, maybe even retroactively now, the technicians can get compensated for the work that they did or, or that you know, we can be designated as more than essential, uh, as truly essential, not expendable, as you call it. I, I think we need a lot of things to change in this profession. You being a very young practitioner, you graduated in 09. I graduated in 81. My daughter Gretchen, who teaches at West Virginia University in the School of Pharmacy, she graduated in 09. Her husband Mark graduated in 03. So we have, you know, younger people, older people. I think we need to agree on one thing. We need provider status. And, and here is where I diverge from everybody else in my age group. The best way for us to obtain provider status, hang on to your seat, Eric. I'm going to say it. I'm 62 years old and I got more gray hair than anybody. <laughs> Pharmacists need to have recertification every 10 years. Physician assistants have to do it. Doctors have to do it. And if we want to have provider status, we need to have recertification for pharmacists every 10 years. Don't give me the nonsense that, well, we have hospital pharmacists and we have oncology pharmacists and we have community pharmacists. I don't want to hear it. The doctors have it figured out, whether you're an internist, a pediatrician, an obstetrician, gynecologist, you pick whatever discipline they have. They have their own certification exams. Pharmacists can do that. I'll tell you right now, I, as a community pharmacist now, would write the 150 community pharmacist exam, 150 question exam. I would do that. I think it is so critically important that we show that we are keeping up to date. The mandatory continuing education if you do it seriously, it is a great thing. I work for FreeCE.com. We put out amazing programs. That being said, there's a lot of people that will turn on the iPad and then click every so often to show that they're, they have a pulse but might not be absorbing anything in the program. People yeah. can go to pharmacy, sign in and sign out. Until we have recertification every 10 years, I 
don't think we should even be talking provider status because provider status tells us that we are a top flight pharmacist that can make these therapeutic judgments and can make these therapeutic decisions. So I, I'm a little bit different with you on that. I actually agree that we should be taking those boards every 10 years again to maintain our licensure because so much changed. As, as someone who's now about 11 years out when I graduated, I, w- I saw something the other day that came through. There was a newer medication. I had to pause and be like, whoa, wait, I haven't heard of this one. It was a specialty med. I couldn't feel it anyway, but I still had to click, look up. What does it do? Okay, here it is, you know, and kind of refresh myself with it a little bit. But I, I wasn't as in tune with it as maybe I should have been. So I'll call myself out there for that. I do think that we can kind of walk and chew gum at the same time when it comes to provider status. And, you know, let's push for this now. We can get it. And then we can make that promise of a change on the back end pretty easily since it is just, like you said, making a test. I, I, I do disagree with specialty medicines. That's its own exam. There is no way <laughs> you and I can learn all specialty medicines. It, then, then it becomes oncology. I yes. had a guy ask me the other day a leukemia medicine. Never heard of it. And I was more than happy to talk, talk to him about it. But on the other hand, Eric, the other last Wednesday I had a patient call me and say, could you give me the side effects of what Eliquis is? And I said, tell me about the patient. Well, he was started on Eliquis three days ago, and he had a blood clot in his leg. And um, I'm wondering if shortness of breath can be a sign of, uh, of Eliquis side effects. I said, oh, my gosh, if he's short of breath, you get him to the hospital immediately. Yeah. So she packed him up to the hospital immediately. He had bilateral pulmonary emboli. Okay. We pharmacists need to be able to know that. No, we can't know every single leukemia medication that's given in a specialty, Eric. We can't. We certainly should be able to determine if a person is at risk for a pulmonary embolism if they're on eloquence therapy. Yeah. I came back yesterday to thank me for saving his life. Yeah, and I think I think that, that the thing about the exam too that some people forget while they balk at this is you gotta remember to, to essentially, if I remember the wording correctly, it's like a, a minimum competency exam, right? So if you get 75 out of the 150 questions, it means that you are minimally competent to be to be doing this. You know what I mean? So I think that I could probably go past it right now. I don't really have a whole lot of hesitation on that. But I do think that there are some people, and you said you're 62. My mom is about your age, and she's recently retired. But I, I think she would struggle with that quite a bit because, you know, if you look at when she graduated in the 70s versus now, it's a world of difference. There's whole classes of medications, and never mind the guidelines are just entirely different when it comes to that. So I do think that that is a good point that our profession could kind of take a little bit of ownership and to help push things like provider status forward a little bit, if you would. So, and when I talk to my uh, physician assistants that are recertifying, they all have a nice thick exam book that they're going through and reviewing, and that's the kind of things we should be able to do. I'm talking minimum competency exam. You're not going to ask Pete Crackle to mix an IV solution. I have no idea how to do it. haven't done one since I was in pharmacy school 40 years ago. But that which I am taking care of in a community pharmacy practice, we need to make sure that our pharmacists are competent to the maximum to do that. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And I think that, like you said, provider status is a good way to help keep us protected when it comes to kind of back to what you originally wrote on, that we are essential people that need some protection so we can help people in times of not just a pandemic, but in normal times, but also especially in a pandemic. So I think that's a, a great call out. Kind of keeping this episode a little bit short for some of the listeners here, but I think you've hit some really cool stances. These are two questions I ask everybody. If you could change one thing about pharmacy, what would you change? What would it be? I would encourage and or demand that we have board recertification every 10 years. 
Uh, we could split the profession into dispensing pharmacists or clinical pharmacists, but they'd still need to have a level of competency no matter what. Okay. Yeah, I think we hit on that a little bit, and it's a, it's a very interesting topic that I love to dive more into at a later date. If you could change one law about pharmacy, federal or state you know, specific since you're in Pennsylvania, what would you change and why? I'll tell you, I think we should have laws being a lot more friendlier for pharmacist discretion, okay? Whether it's things like the state board inspectors coming in and saying, uh, this guy didn't have a mask on, or I know of a pharmacy that got rid up, written up for having a stain on their ceiling tile because that wasn't cleanliness. Uh, I've seen pharmacists, you know, we can't reuse prescription containers unless they're easy open. You take a, a prescription vial with 180 uh, carbidolol in it, that can be opened 180 times safely before you have to throw it out. If you have the same prescription vial with four Dostinex in it, you have to throw that out after four openings. We need to wrestle back this profession from the legislators and have pharmacist discretion being what runs the pharmacy and not all this nitpicking stuff that uh, so many people want to do to our profession that provides absolutely no value and provides only fear for the people working in the pharmacy. Yeah, I, I've said this before, and I think I've had other people say it in the podcast, but we are probably, if not the most regulated profession there is out there. I can't think of anyone else who just has so many crazy laws and updates that come out, I swear to God, monthly in just in each individual state, let alone the whole nation when it comes to some of this stuff. Those drug law books are just insanely thick. And I don't think there's anyone out there who could know every single law when it comes to our profession. There's just so stinking many. Would you agree with that? I, I agree entirely. And it's time to pair those laws down as long as we are doing patient safety and, and for the good of the public, I think that needs to be the answer. We don't need all of these picayune laws. So what law would I change? I'd probably say throw the whole book out and let's start rewriting it, Eric. I would not want to have to rewrite every pharmacy law. I would love to help, but there's no way in heck I could rewrite all of those. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that is a good way to look at it is let's, let's start with a clean slate when it comes to some of these things. That's awesome. Uh, hey, Peter, thank you for coming on here. I appreciate your your advocacy for our profession and your how much you write for uh, places like Drug Topics. I think that's a great way that you can help push our, our profession forward. And even though, as you said, you're 62, I'm, I'm glad to see someone who's on the, uh, the latter portion of their career still out there kind of throwing punches and trying to make a difference for us. I love this profession, Eric, and the reason I do this is for the Eric Geyers, the Gretchen Kreckel Garofalis, and the Mark Garofalis, so that whether you're in academia or whether you're a community pharmacist, that we are advancing this profession. There's an old saying, Eric, you either get into politics or out of pharmacy. Thanks so much for the opportunity to talk with you on this podcast. Yeah, thanks again, Peter. You've been a great guest. Um, and listeners, obviously, if you can share this, I think that if you go look up Peter's article on drug topics, it's amazing. I'll put the link to it in the show notes so that you can access it and see. It's a quick read. It's an easy read. It's perfect to understand for this the background of some of this podcast. And as always, thank you for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.